You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. This episode is a discussion with Marie Bell. She is an educator, artist, community leader, and practitioner of yoga and mindfulness. She currently resides in Washington, D.C. and teaches yoga, mindfulness, and critical thinking. Marie Bell is also a Ph.D. who uses her professional and academic career and background in psychology, culture, and empowerment to bring in teachings of resilience into the yoga practice. She shares her deeply personal journey through Ashtanga yoga into healing. I hope you'll enjoy this episode. And Marie Bell is teaching on OMSTARS this month for a special handstand clinic. And she teaches a weekly class for us right here on OMSTARS. If you're not a member, you should be. Use the code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, all capital letters, and get your first month free. So hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I'm here with Marie Bell, and hi, Marie. Thanks so much for coming on. Hi, Kino. Thank you for having me. I'm really grateful. Thank you. So many people might not be familiar with kind of who you are and what teaching you offer into the yoga space. So maybe we can start just with you letting everyone know, you know, what your teaching is about, where you come from and where you find yourself now in the yoga space. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I started practicing yoga in my first practice was in 2001. So it was like when I was a college student. And it was really interesting. The whole class, I wasn't able to really land in my body. It was, I was in a very different space with my body and it was kind of distracting. But I remember walking out of that class a lot taller. Like my, I felt more poised, graceful, light. And I told myself I was going to practice every day. (laughs) Um, But then I didn't actually get back to practice until six years later when I was at Virginia Tech. And at that point, I was in graduate school, um, getting my doctorate in psychology. And I got into it from different perspectives. One was on a physical level, but to reel that a little bit further back, April 16, 2007, um, there were some shootings at Virginia Tech and um, 32 people were murdered and then he killed himself. So it was like this whole thing, um, this whole experience of being on lockdown and being physically there. And then coming out to the circus of the news or like everyone knowing what happened, yet I still wasn't clear what had actually happened. And you were there during that time? Mm -hmm. I was in the building next door. Um, So I could hear things and we were on lockdown for hours. And when we came down, like when we were let out of the building, um, there were cameras everywhere. And it felt like I mentioned like a circus. Things and this is a different this is a different lockdown than what we've just experienced the last year. Yeah, is- yeah. So it kind of reminded me. I used to live in Florida. It kind of reminded me of tornado drills or hurricanes, mm-hmm. like when you mm-hmm. go under the desk and you just lock all of the doors and or okay. like you stay in shelter, you shelter in place. But this was from a physical violence perspective, not wow. from um, a pandemic per se. But yeah, so that whole experience kind of highlighted. Um, or brought to the light 
trauma <laughs> and all these experiences that everyone had witnessed. Um, and for me, I had experienced quite a bit before that, but this was the most public one. And so from there, I kind of started showing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, mm -hmm. like not making eye contact with anyone, not feeling safe anywhere, um, not really having will or motive to spend time with anyone. Um, I felt very, hmm, when, when your privacy is taken away from you, I felt very kind of like out there in that way. Like my face was in magazines crying, you know, wow. that kind of thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so what happened is my mentor picked up on it, obviously. And she told me I should talk to someone. And at the time I had no desire to talk to anyone. And, um, the beautiful thing about this event is that after everything happened, everyone stormed Virginia tech, whether it was psychologists wanting to study trauma or yogis wanting to teach yoga to heal or mindfulness, all this stuff. And there was this mindfulness-based stress reduction, um, group, and it was a 12 week program. And, um, my mentor was like, you would like it. And I told her that I wasn't interested and she said, the good thing is you don't have to talk to anyone. There's no talking. You don't talk. You kind of just um, observe thoughts and observe sensation. And I was like, well, maybe I'm open to that because I didn't really want to hear anyone else's experience. I didn't want to hear anyone else's stories. I still hadn't processed my own. Um, and the first six weeks were boring, <laughs> were uneventful. And on week six of that um, training, we had, um, I started speaking and I started making eye contact and being interested in other people a little bit more. And it was movement. It was mindful movement. And we were to walk around barefooted and our homework was to walk on the drill field where there was grass and it's a beautiful campus and notice is the grass young, old, wet, recently cut, that kind of thing. And when I started speaking, then the coach was like, you would really like yoga. <laughs> so I went into yoga from that perspective as well. And it didn't really resonate with me still. Um, I didn't really like the chanting at the beginning or lying on the floor with strangers at the end. <laughs> so it kind of, you know, it was, it was a little bit off-putting at times. And then I started training to bike across the country because again, I could be on my own and I was developing this independence that just kind of kept me safe, quote unquote. And in the middle of the night from training 40 miles a day, I would start stretching or like my quads would hurt or I would cramp up. And so from a physical perspective, I returned to yoga and I had beautiful teachers who didn't demand that I show up on time or that I stay through the end of um, Shavasana. And I'm really grateful for that. Um, and shortly after, um, in August, I joined a teacher training and it wasn't for anything other than to develop my own practice and to see what was happening and why it was working. And it happened to be an Ashtanga training. It was an Ashtanga teacher training and um, it was a Manju Joyce student mm. who was teaching it. And um, it was nine months. It was the whole academic calendar. And month one was Sun Salutation A. That was it. Go home, practice, read scripture, meditate, journal, observe. And then month two was sun A, sun B, go home, practice, go on wow, with your life. Nice. And so it was very settling and very grounding. And it was very much focused on building your own practice. Um, and I had no idea there was roadmaps. You know, I had no idea how much more there was. And I didn't have a desire on a physical level. I just wanted to feel good in my body. And I wanted to be at peace because it wasn't something I had been feeling for a long time.
And then from there, it kind of just took over. Yoga took over. Um, and I practice Ashtanga every day. Um, and slowly yoga studios started popping up or becoming popular. And I did a vinyasa training, a hot yoga training, just so I could do free yoga, basically. <laughs> and then I learned Anusara because I started hurting my shoulder. And mm -hmm. um, my sister, um, she's 14 months older than me. And she's basically just 14 months cooler than me. So she's always ahead of everything that's about to be really cool for me. And she was in Anusara, which is more alignment-based in Tantra. Um, and when I met one of her teachers, it clicked. You know, she was able to look at my body and say, plug the shoulders back, hug the ribs in, engage your thigh. She was able to give me the physical muscular alignment cues that Ashtanga hadn't given me. And I'm grateful Ashtanga gave me the breath, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So with Ashtanga, it was really nice because I wasn't focused on the physical, even though now maybe people are. I was focused on the internal experience and going home and practicing no one watching, no cameras. Mm -hmm. And then in Anusada, it felt more collected in um, a physical way. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that. And then I moved to DC. Um, there was a Dharma community here. So I learned Dharma yoga as well. Um, so I'm pretty much, I, I like to think of myself as multidisciplinary mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and my first love and still my love is Ashtanga. And in the process, it's informed by all these practices and I love that. this approach. Yeah. Yeah. And you shared with me uh, before that you have recently taken a, a sort of deep dive into the trauma-informed perspective of yoga. So I can understand now from your past experiences, perhaps why that why that door opened up for you. Would you? How did that come up? Did that come up recently, or has that just been a kind of natural evolution of everything that you've been through up till now? Yes. <laughs> so yes to everything. Um, I believe all of it's a natural evolution. Um, what's happened in with this whole um, work from home lockdown pandemic has been um, for a long time, I would go out to learn. I would go out to the university. I would go out to India. I would go somewhere and have these experiences and learn from these people. And when all of everything got shut down, it was like time to integrate, time to go inwards and time to sit in my house and really integrate. And in the process, um, a beautiful thing is I started being exposed to teachers I didn't have access to before or graduate studies that I had wanted to return to, but I didn't have the time. So um, I joined this program for psychologists and coaches because I'm both. And um, it was on trauma and resilience and how um, trauma impacts the body and how to use embodiment practices to work with it rather than um, force things or avoid it. And basically learning how to use the body um, and community with that. So what's the difference between post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic post stress disorder? Because I feel like there's a lot of talk about the negative impacts of trauma, but when you bring up resilience, then there seems to be this possibility of a post-traumatic growth experience. So what's the, what's the difference there? Yeah. Um, well, for me, with post-traumatic stress disorder, and there's communities right now pushing for the removal of the word post because you, one still experiences it daily. And there's other communities pushing for removal of the word disorder because it's not a disorder. It's actually quite normal. <laughs> but in regard, well, I'll just talk about it from post-traumatic stress disorder because that is what I was diagnosed with. Um, so with that, I think that the main question was why me? Like, 
why did I survive? Or why was I there? Or why did it happen to this person? So there's a lot of whys that may never get answered. Um, and I looked to religion and it wasn't helpful. I looked to my family. I, I couldn't get the, I couldn't get the answers through the systems and ideologies that I had been taught to search for answers. And so, um, with post-traumatic growth, I see it more from like a positive psychology perspective, which is, um, instead of why me, it's what now. So yes, there's these imprints. Yes, there's these experiences. What do I do with them? And so with post-traumatic stress disorder, I was compartmentalizing my life. And um, I was able to have different versions of me functioning. With post-traumatic growth, it's this integration. And yes, this is part of my life. And yes, this fuels how I teach and how I engage with others. So um, with post-traumatic stress disorder, I was also like vulnerability was scary. There was no way I was going to be vulnerable. Or let's say I created armor around myself um, or a particular shaping. So that couldn't happen to me again. Um, and so with post-traumatic growth, it's like, okay, this happened. Let me keep growing with this, not in spite of it. Um, but with this, this is part of who I am. And, um, this is kind of, um, my point of connection or another point of connection. A lot of people that experience trauma and there are many, um, how many end up in that resilience phase of kind of post-traumatic growth and how many are, um, you know, still hampered by the negative impacts of trauma? Yeah. Um, well, it's so interesting when we start looking at the stats. So, um, 90% of people have experienced some form of trauma, whether it's witnessed, um, directly or perceived or seen, observed, um, that, right. And then from there, maybe 25% get a diagnosis. Um, from that, how many heal? Um, this is going to, again, be a operational definition piece, whereas it's like, well, it depends how you define healing. Um, because for me, I thought healing meant I would return to who I was, and that's not an option. Or I would not no longer have feelings around it. That's not an option, right? Um, and so there's many different modes of therapy that have different percentages for different types of trauma. And so I got interested in like, um, like plant medicine for post-traumatic stress disorder. There's some studies at Johns Hopkins that work with war veterans and they were specifically working with people with PTSD and suicide, suicide attempts, multiple. And after doing several of them, like 90% recovered, which is unheard of. But again, these are studies of 10, you know, mm -hmm. now if we're talking about like EMDR or talking therapy or mindfulness, it's a longer process. Um, but I do appreciate the process, if that makes sense. So that's mm -hmm. kind of where my strength is, um, is looking at the process and kind of gradually unraveling, gradually um, making sense of it. I, I there's so much to tap into in what you just said. I, I, mm -hmm. I want to go back to this idea that I think many people sit with of, I want to go back to where I was before. I want mm -hmm. to like go back to what was. And many people, I think on some level over the last year and a half, there's a yearning to go back to what, to what once was and a question of what will be. So this kind of collective trauma that everyone's experienced during, you know, the coronavirus times. And then I think there are a lot of people that are kind of trying to get back to what was. 
Mm-hmm. So as you said, that's not possible. Like we're never going to be those people again. We've lived through this experience. This is going to be integrated in, in who we are. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a really important piece. I think uh, for many, many people to, to think about uh, just that, you know, that experience is not something we can erase and delete mm-hmm. and just go back to the person that we were before. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's no longer an option. And mm-hmm. as I was thinking about all of this, it was kind of, it's similar for me with Ashtanga. Um, I remember when I started getting deeper in the practice, meaning more daily, not necessarily more poses, just it became a part of my life. I started feeling a lot more, which for me was dangerous. I, I believed emotions were dangerous, specifically sadness or grief. And I refused to feel those emotions. Um, And so when I started finally feeling that, I remember talking to my teacher at the time and I was like, I'm just going through a transition. And he was like, everything's a transition. We're always transitioning. And so now going back to what you mentioned, like, I want to go back to how things were. It's like, well, that's not an option. And we're actually, we get to be active in the transition. It's, um, or do, that's kind of a choice we have. And part of the empowerment or the resilience or the post-traumatic growth piece could be, I want to be actively engaged in this transition. And for now, we all kind of took a collective breath, or maybe we were holding our breath for the last year uh, and seeing how things are being shifted and recalibrated. And what do we do with that, right? And I feel like Ashtango kind of prepared me for this, to be honest with you. At times, I remember thinking, I've met some people who were in prison and learned Ashtanga in prison. Prison, and that actually like helped them through the daily, the daily things that would happen, the difficulties. And I remember being like, I think if I was ever like stuck somewhere, I would just have my practice and I would feel safe. It was a form of safety and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's just understanding that it's a transition and everything is going to transition regardless. It's just whether we get to be active in it or not. There's, there's this idea in the Ashtanga practice that I definitely relate with of the safety of the known routine mm-hmm. of, you know, I get on my mat, I do the opening prayer, I go through the sensitizations, the standing poses, and it's the same thing, and it's the safe zone, and I don't need it to be something new. And it's the, it's the pure repetition of it that kind of creates that ritualistic safety of the practice. And um, mm-hmm. there are so many people who've asked me, you know, Kina, I've been practicing Ashtanga for more than 20 years. Aren't you bored? It's the same series. And I'm like, no, that's kind of like I'm settling into it. And it's this constant mirror. And I think there's also something about trauma in there as well, because it's the safety of the known. You know, mm-hmm. it's the, the, it's the, the, the same movements. And I uh, was speaking about this um, as a, as a safe space to calm anxiety. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the advice was given to um, come up with a routine that you could go through in your mind of a safe space for you. And what could that be? And it's mm-hmm. just to talk yourself through the movements. And I, you know, uh, and the, 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 the suggestions were maybe there's a walk that you go through, or maybe there's a drive that you do often. And I was like, no, I know exactly what it is. It's a come inhale. I raise my mm-hmm. hands to exhale. I fold forward. I'm going to talk myself through a practice as a, as a place to kind of come when the mind, uh, won't deact- disengage from those destructive thoughts. So, mm-hmm. so I think, I think the practice is just, is deeply healing in that way. And at the same time, 
there's many, many students that come into the yoga space carrying these deep traumas. Mm -hmm. So how does trauma inform the yoga space? And what's the intersection of uh, bringing an awareness of trauma into interacting with students and into interacting with the vulnerabilities that come up in the yoga space? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, for me, I feel like the most the most direct way, well, I kind of want to talk to a few things that you just mentioned because I feel what you're saying as well. Like the practice eventually for me is like a gentle rocking, like self-soothing mm-hmm. behavior, self-soothing practice. And kind of um, there's this practice of like for post like if you're just working with something difficult, is kind of sit down and write down every difficult experience you've ever had and move through. So you have on paper and you are directly experiencing the remembrance of yourself being resilient, the remembrance of you moving through hardship or suffering. If I were to extrapolate that and make it a little bit less deep, it'd be like every single posture that we're (laughs) moving through at some point was really difficult. I remember I wanted upward facing plank wasn't happening for me because my physical body was carrying itself forward and armored, whether it was because I was with carrying my stuff or biking or whatever, I was locked up in my ribs. Um, and so like every single posture is like, ha, oh, that actually feels good. And so we're imprinting these experiences of feeling safe in our body, feeling safe in our home or moving at our own pace. So in regards to the practice, I feel that now, if I were to, to bring it to the teaching experience, it's kind of reminding us that we have choice. We have choice in how we move through things. We have choice in how deep the breath is and reminding students of that. Because when I first started, I didn't realize how shallow my breath was or how repetitive my thoughts were or how locked up I was. And so even in practice at times, um, you'll probably, like if you're in the Mysore room, you'd hear me say, slow down the breath. You can hear your breath. And then the rest is silence, right? And so it's just this being comfortable in the uncomfortable and being comfortable in silence and not having to talk and just kind of experience. So moving into this observer role, observing that we're not the emotions, but they're there. We're not the breath, but here it is breathing in spite of us, right? Um, So I think a big portion of it is returning to the observer role. Another as a teacher is offering choice. Um, Like even now, I just started the in-person Mysore on Monday again. Everything has been on Zoom up until Monday. And people returned and they were modifying their practice a lot. (laughs) um, Did you just skip a vinyasa there? And someone was like, yes. I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's okay. You're here. You're here. That's the most important thing is you're here and gradually we'll build it back up. So this acceptance of people where they are. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not as interested in their performance. I'm interested in them being real. And then the fact that I responded like that to the student kind of made that person exhale a little bit longer. She's like, oh, okay, good. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't yeah. be full primary today. And oh, so some yeah. of them were at like half primary and I'm like, this is good. This is good. Um, So accepting people where they are with the understanding that eventually we'll build a little more heat (laughs) and a little bit, but right now may not be the time for, you know, like going, going all the way. Yeah. Um, I experienced something similar in uh, some recent in-person classes. I feel like the, as I've been particularly in, in Ashtanga, when we teach Mysore practice, I uh, uh, recently taught a class where the beginning of the class I went, as soon as I went to ask someone if they wanted help, almost every single person said, I haven't done this in about two years. <laughs> I haven't done just, a, and I almost wanted to make like a public service announcement, like, Hey, 
I am aware that most of you probably are modifying your practices and haven't done what you want to, you know, uh, the things that we'll be doing together in the last year and a half. And it's totally fine. And you don't have to. And and um, that's a palpable change in the Ashtanga tradition. You know, I mean, when I first started practicing, it was like the teacher uh, sort of set the tone and the teacher says, do this and you do this, just period, end of story. And mm-hmm. I think a, a very recent and important pivotal shift in the Ashtanga tradition is to navigate the space of lifting up the student's own agency while maintaining the authority of the teacher. Mm-hmm. And so this is an interesting dichotomy that's, that's, that's important, I think, for teachers and students to reflect on, particularly in the atmosphere of being sensitive to trauma. So I Like, how do you do that? How do you, like, how do you think that the teacher can maintain a sense of authority while at the same time respecting the student's agency? Because sometimes the students, and I mean, we've all had this students where we say like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. I can't. The teacher's like, yes, you can. And then you do it and you get this big empowerment moment because you're like, wow, I just did something that I thought I couldn't do. That's awesome. But if the teacher didn't insist in that moment, then it wouldn't have happened. So it's like, Oh, how does that all fit in? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I think of who I'd, how I'd want a teacher to approach me. And so right now I've been consciously working on being softer and observing. And so if let's say a student's like, I can't do it. Um, first, I remove the word can't. It's just like, oh, okay, so it's challenging. Is that what you mean? Or you're working on it? Or is it the technique? And so kind of removing the word can't or removing the shell and trying to explore. And then based on the exploration, maybe I'm like, okay, well, whenever you're ready, I'm here, right? Now, if someone, I had a student who was like, oh, no, I, um, I broke my sacrum. I was like, oh, that's intense. Um, okay, we don't have to go there. And then a couple months later, I was like, when did this happen? Um, if you don't mind me asking. And it happened 20 plus years ago. <laughs> so I was like, well, whenever you're ready, I'm here for you. So I think, I think we, we're ready to look at that now. And Drew's like, I think so too. So again, for me, it's, um, I, I work differently. Mine is just asking more questions just to see where the hardening is. Is it on a physical scale? Is it an emotional like resistance? Is it a logical resistance? Um, Yeah. So it would be that. And then another would be when people want to go further and technically their body or their endurance or whatever Mm -hmm. is telling me, I don't think that's healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, and so with that, again, I, I always try to frame it in the, in the sense of the students, like, I'm, you know, I want you here. I love having you practice here. I think you'll benefit more if X, Y, and Z. Um, but do let me know if what your thoughts are around that. Mm-hmm. So doing that, but not at the moment of the pose, right? So it would be after the practice or before the practice. So when it's in practice, there's no need to engage in those type of um, conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, I haven't really worried too much about the authority piece. I feel like that just kind of comes through in silence and in the fact that I'm there to be of service. Um, so I haven't had too much issue with that. Um, in lead classes a little bit more so, but in the Mysore room, people are very receptive. 
I like that. I think that's great. I think it's a question that's really just pertinent in the whole Ashtanga community as we evolve and we grow as a community to to, to, to sit with that question of, you know, uh, authority versus agency and how and how there's a, a space where student and teacher meet for the benefit of both, you know, mm-hmm. where there's teaching and there's learning and then there's learning and teaching as well. And there's this idea of, you know, uh, kind of taking the teacher off the pedestal of perfection and bringing them into the sphere of humanity and sort of saying, Mm -hmm. you know, the teacher is not a god. The teacher may have more information than you have about this practice. So great. Um, At the same time, it's very easy for students to, and, and, and anybody really, if a teacher does something really, really wonderful for you to get attached you know, and to actually lose your sense of self and then just be kind of willing to, okay, well, I'll do whatever they say because that worked that one time and that's the slippery slope. So I feel it's, um, you know, it's just a space that we're, that we're, that we're navigating and reflecting on. And I think conversations like this are important to bring that, that dialogue, you know, forward. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that is, that's interesting that you brought up the word attachment because I do see teachers as attachment figures we all are attachment figures of sorts, but as a teacher, knowing that is like, I want to, um, I want to create, um, secure attachment where they know they can rely on me and they know they can ask me questions. They also have their own independence. So that secure attachment will look and, um, feel different for each person, but definitely, um, having that and then creating boundaries outside of that space. Um, so in general, I mean, the good thing is I'm quite introverted, so I don't, it's not that difficult for me to create boundaries, but, um, in general, I think it's important to remember that as teachers, we are attachment figures. We are, um, that's just kind of the game, how it happens. How do you navigate that space about the setting those boundaries? You know, is it just, is it just, as you said, easy for you because you want to go home and sort of be in your own space or, you know, how do you be there for the student while at the same time set your boundaries for, you know, uh, for health, for your own mental, emotional safety? Um, I mean, I think it's going to constantly shift. Um, more recently, I was educated on that. So I've, I was trained on how to do certain, how to work within the scope of practice would be the professional lingo for that. Um, a big, what does that mean? Um, so if something comes up, like what we're talking about, trauma. And they share something very deep or meaningful and relevant and present. Um, I'm not a therapist. I know I have a PhD in psychology and I know technically I could work with this. I purposely choose to have students and to teach, not to have patients or clients, right? Um, And so if and when that does come out, um, be willing to refer out and be willing to acknowledge whatever just came up. And People do share a lot with me and often I thank them, you know, first and foremost, like, thank you for sharing this with me. I know this isn't easy, like how difficult. And, um, and one of the things I was taught to do is not to apologize. Like, I'm not going to say, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. I would say, thank you for sharing this with me. Um, I, I know quite a few people who are really good with what you're bringing up. If you don't mind, I can share some resources with you. And so refer out. That's like one of the main things. Um, and I want to keep working with you. And there's all these other resources that um, have been helpful for me. Um, and I want you to be well or something like that. Or um, So it's been really interesting to show genuine concern 
all the while still be there for the person. Because back in the day, I was very binary. And if they needed therapy, they needed to be out, right? Not really. That's how I felt about me. That's how I felt about me. Like, I wasn't going to tell my yoga teacher what was going on. Like, I had very separate compartments for what was going on. But nowadays, it seems like those boundaries are dissolving a little bit. Um, so I have a list of references of different people I work with, different, um, identity, you know, different identifications, different phenotypes, everything. I purposefully have organized it ahead of time. Um, and I always share with my people who teach that that's, I just share that list with them. Um, that's awesome. Not that's shy a, away, you know? Yeah. That's a really good list the referral list. And also mm-hmm. that creates this human boundary of what is possible for the, you know, in the role of the teacher. And I, I, I think that's really, really awesome. In our, in our longer courses, we include like a, a sheet of referrals from, mm-hmm. you know, with everything from the psychologist to the hospitals, to a physical therapist, acupuncture, mm-hmm. um, chiropractor and massage therapists and just everything in between so that people have those tools at their resource, because it, there are, there are certain conditions, whether it comes up, um, you know, trauma wise, or even just physical wise, where a student may come in and say, I have a pain here, you know, what is that about? And to, you know, to diagnose a pain is a different skill set than to hold space for how to work with whatever, uh, you know, is the source of that pain within the yoga context. So this mm-hmm. is also an interesting yeah. limitation to think about. So I love that referral. It's yeah. awesome. And even within boundaries, the other side of that is also being available. And mm-hmm. so I purposefully do want to be with the community. I do want to share with them outside of the yoga space. And so like we'll do yoga meetups at the park, something that is public, something that is open so everyone can meet each other because technically in Mysore, no one talks. Or in classes, <laughs> there's only this 10-minute window between when our class ends and another one begins. So creating spaces where we can engage in a non-student teacher way, but still in a professional way. Um, I have these things that maybe have kept me back professionally, but like when there's like potlucks and there's drinking, I'll bring food over and I'll hang out, but I'm not going to drink with my student. Like I just won't. And I'm okay with people who do, but there are certain things that I'm like, I'll still attend certain events, but I'm not going to engage in any other thing other than dialogue and eating per se. Um, and so, yeah, yoga meetups, potlucks, I think it's really important to have a community, um, and to feed with the community or to eat with them. Um, and then also have safe boundaries and referring and all of that. <laughs> I, I think that's really, that's really, really nice. And especially we've been missing that over the last year and a half, you know, you talk about a potluck mm-hmm. and bringing food and sharing food, you know, wow. You know, when we're allowed to take our masks off and be indoors with people or even outdoors and eat and potentially even like dip a spoon into something without having, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety, that's part of what's been so lonely about the, the past year is that the, the, you know, the virtual is awesome. And at the same time, we miss this sense of this sense of, you know, just being in the body next to someone to feel someone's face mm-hmm. is different when we, you know, when we're, when we're literally sharing space with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So one, one other thing I wanted to um, talk about was this question of embodiment, you know, and particularly the, the, the female body, because as we get at this intersection of yoga being very, very healing for many people, there are many women practicing yoga enter into the, the, the yoga space. And, you know, I, I, how, do, how does it feel to navigate 
the female body in this realm of yoga, sometimes the imagery around yoga, the stories that are told around yoga are very um, singular. And there's, there's kind of like a model that's presented of, of, of an individual that has a body that's a particular age and size and level of flexibility doing these poses with this particular background. And then if you don't fit into that, you know, how does, how does that play into our feeling of being in the body and, and any potential trauma responses that might come up from the feeling of, of not, not being part of the group. Yeah. Um, the beautiful thing for me was that when I got into Ashtanga, I wasn't as concerned about my body. It was so much going on mentally and emotionally that I actually, looking back on it, felt safe being like, it was beautiful to have the safety of someone else's body and hands like adjusting me. Or the fact that um, this teacher purposefully created this safe space for our physical body. So um, for a little while, for a couple of months, I was like, wow, like this person actually cares about my physical safety. They care about my well-being. So at the beginning, and when I say the beginning, also I'm saying before Instagram. <laughs> I'm also yeah. saying before <laughs> the, you know, the um, commercialization of it. Obviously, it was still commercialized then, but in a different scale, and the images were different. Um, when I learned Ashtanga, like I saw, like Krish I saw Krishna Macharya's videos, or you know, it was black and white videos, and it was someone who doesn't look like me, completely different body, completely different everything, which also made it that much more intriguing. Mm -hmm. For me, it wasn't off-putting. For mm -hmm. me, it was just like that'll never happen, and that was about it, you know. It, and moving forward, once Instagram became a bigger, well, before Instagram, there was YouTube, and I used to watch your videos, and I was like, this is so cool to watch a woman in the United States doing this because I, I had no goals. I sh like with yoga, I didn't have goals on the physical realm. It, I didn't start becoming goal-oriented or performative, which goes to the question that you were at. Like, it didn't become performative until I moved to DC. And then um, things started shifting. And then I started realizing there were more rules. Because remember, my teacher was Manju Joyce-oriented, mm -hmm. and he also knew everything that happened at Virginia Tech. So his mm -hmm. approach was softer and do what you can and da-da-da, all is good. Um, and then I come to D.C. and someone's like, no, no. And so it became this culture of no and shaming. Um, and maybe it was just this particular teacher or community but that's when I started seeing my body as like, wait, like I didn't realize people were looking at my body for what it was doing or not doing. Right. Um, and so I did start having issues around that. Um, and then watching Instagram and stuff and seeing certain people succeed, not because they were great practitioners or writers or read scripture or knew anything just because of what they were willing to do, um, body and physical wise. Um, so it became a bit off-putting, but more on a professional level, not so much on, I still kept my practice. And then I, once I, then I switched rooms and, um, I went somewhere where I didn't know anyone and she was amazing and she's authorized and she has nothing to prove. So it was really nice to return to her and she had a softer approach. And her main thing was she stays out of the way and she's just creating space for you to work out whatever you need to work out. And if that looks like you're jumping into a handstand, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Whereas the other teacher really wanted to have the authority in the room, and that meant regulating other people's bodies. Mm -hmm. And I have seen that approach in the Ashtanga world, but not always from people who actually go to India. <laughs> interesting. Know? Yeah, so, that is interesting. Yeah. So I, 
the, I started experiencing more shame um, once I got into those particular communities. But again, I had the luck or the blessing that I already had communities before that, that I would revert to. And I was like, is this weird? And one of my mentors was like, Marie, you have to remember that everyone's coming into yoga with their own thing. And um, so are the teachers. The teachers are also students. So just go to a different room, go to a different teacher, you know? Um, And so for me, once I did that, I shifted. I will say that that previous room, most people were hurt. Most people would hurt their shoulder or hurt their knee and talk about how Ashtanga hurts you. And it was like, well, actually it's the approach that you're taking. It's not the Mm -hmm. practice itself. So mine was more from a physical shaming and hurting perspective. But from what it looks like, I haven't really paid as much attention to that, but I guess I should also say I'm Puerto Rican and I'm, I've always felt like an other regardless, because when I lived in the United States, I didn't look like the, I went to high school in North Carolina, you know, no one looked like me. And so that to me has always been a norm. So, um, I haven't really been too worried about other women's bodies, um, in, in that way, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. Definitely. I, I, I feel like this, that, that when those images get kind of popularized and as the yoga gets more commercialized and then it, it can be alienating for some people who, who look and think, well, gosh, I don't, where do I fit in into all of that? Mm-hmm. Is there space for me? You know, and, and Ashtanga, I think sometimes can be really intimidating for someone who doesn't feel naturally flexible, who feels like, gosh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if I can be next to the person with both legs behind their head, if I need a chair to balance in the standing poses. And one of the things that I really want to do as a teacher is make a MISO room where all levels feel really, really welcomed. And there's excitement about working with all different body types. And, you know, there's space for everyone to go through what they need to go through and get what they need to get from the practice. And mm-hmm. I, I really hope that's the future of the, of the method. Yeah. And that's actually what I was directly experiencing um, before the pandemic, because I had all different body types, all different ages, all different races. And that's, I think, one of the reasons I keep coming back to Washington, D.C. It's so it's so diverse that you could see different bodies doing the same poses. And it was like, oh, wow. And so, again, when people were like, well, what's it supposed to look like? Is it like, "Mm, let's just see. Can you breathe here? Right. And I at times I always refer to the one teacher I share that she softened me quite a bit is she's like, it doesn't have to look a particular way, right? I know that that's the marriage or the intersection of a lot of other traditions that your foot needs to be like this. Your knee needs to be like this. There can't be space here, but that's not entirely true, especially if you actually work with different body types and different malleabilities Mm -hmm. and different conditions. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, no, for me, that's something that I really love with DC and the community um, that we're building here is from all walks of life, which is really beautiful. Um, And again, it's not about what it looks like. It's how it feels and how you're breathing. And the fact that that person is doing something is harder is actually inspiring and it doesn't ever have to be something you do. Right. Um, And so I also do try to share with students. that's like, well, this person actually is here every day. Um, and this person has completely different goals, ideas, life than this person does. Right. Um, so I do keep that in mind, what their life patterns are and what they're doing when they're not in yoga. So, 
And you also post and share some really amazing, inspiring handstand videos on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So like we talked about Ashtanga, but I also see that sometimes you say, you know, uh, you made a post recently that said something like Ashtanga, contort, bike ride, repeat, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was with your adorable puppy. Yeah. My hundred pound toddler. He's hundred pound lab. (laughs) <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Yeah. It's so sweet. Yeah. So that was the other piece in regards to accepting all bodies is when I was in that room that I felt shamed and I got hurt. And um, they, the particular teacher was trying to get me to stop doing everything else. Stop biking, stop running, stop rock climbing, stop handstanding, because it was getting in the way of the poses. Mm-hmm. And if I was going to continue, I needed to stop doing all those other things. And to be honest, I make sure not to ever repeat that because that actually was a quality of my life and that was my community. And that's how I engage Mm. with my people. And like all of a sudden I had to let go of the biking community and the rock climbing community. And um, I did and it worked, but I wasn't necessarily happy. Again, I was learning how to compartmentalize or um, live in a binary world. And now um, the cool, not so cool, but I got injured and I got a really bad back injury um, in India and for a year and a half, I was I also was scared to return to the practice. Um, and so I started doing everything that didn't hurt, which was rock climbing didn't hurt, biking didn't hurt, going on a hike didn't hurt. It was mostly the back bend, you know, very deep back bends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met people who are contortionists and they taught me how to do it with strength, right? So I learned more belly back bends and I just learned how to reprogram the body in a very direct way. So they took out everything and it was just physical. Let's just figure it out. (laughs) And that was really empowering. And I realized that I'm someone who is empowered in the physical world. Um, And so now I don't want to separate all of this. I think it's possible to do all of it. It's just how we schedule it and what has priority. And I'm not at a point where I want the next pose. So Mm -hmm. that's the other piece that shifted. It's kind of like, I have my practice and it is what it is. It does not have to be my exercise. It does not have to be this whole thing of how I achieve goals. This is just my practice. Mm -hmm. So um, I I love that. mm -hmm, Yeah. Oh, yeah, I started rock climbing quite a bit and I'd like to start going outdoors in a year. I just like <laughs> being, I like being new at things and getting, learning, learning how to use my body in different ways. That's so cool. That's awesome. I I, lo- I absolutely love hiking and love being outdoors. And, and I do, I do agree that there's, um, you know, there's a quality of life element. You know, I think it's David Swenson. He often says, you know, don't, don't let yoga ruin your life. Mm-hmm. You know, and so if you're if you're out on a hike and then you're like, oh, I shouldn't hike so much uh, because tomorrow I have to do Kapotasana, then, you know, maybe you can let Kapotasana go the next day and mm-hmm. just enjoy the hike. Like it's mm-hmm. maybe you're in a beautiful spot in the nature and that's what it is. So yeah. enjoy it. Yeah. So for- the blessing of having Zion, he's my like I shared my hundred pound <laughs> lab is he needs to be outside. And yes. I, I swear that he's the reason I'm like, he makes me a cooler person. Like I get to explore <laughs> nature, you know, it's like, let's check out this other park. Um, because, uh, again, I feel safe with him and, um, going back to the body thing, you know, I was trained to be scared of everything, whether it's scared of being outside by myself or scared of that pose or scared of a lot of fear and worry. And with him, like, I don't have that fear or now in my own practice, I don't have that fear. I can be alone and I'm safe. 
Um, but yeah, he helps me find the hikes, the water places. He finds them all. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Does he help you in the Mysore room? Uh, no, because I feel like he would chew everyone's shoes. He is invited. <laughs> the studio is like, you know, he could be there. I was like, you know, he weighs a hundred pounds and he really likes people. Um, he, so we might be I, able to train him to do Pashimatanasana assists. Yeah. Yeah. He does come over every time. Like once I'm almost done with practice, if you notice right before take rest, he comes over and lies down with me. Oh. Or if I forward fold after dropbacks, he comes over and starts licking me, which is oh. sweet, but I don't know if the mice or students yeah maybe not everyone that. Yeah. yeah and then they'd have to put like, they would have to get to work right after this i don't yeah. need a dog hair so that's funny no you could have some people who are like please assist me please only let the dog assist me mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> that's so yeah. sweet that's awesome mm-hmm. i hope to, i hope i get to meet your your hundred pound toddler one day mm-hmm. yeah, yeah he's amazing so for everyone that wants to practice with you uh, in the DC area, they can come practice with you in person. And how about online? I think you have a, a fun workshop that's coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to teach for OMSTARS on Thursdays in general. So Thursdays at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time live. And then, of course, you can do the recordings. And then we're doing a handstand workshop, but it's going to be like warm up the wrist, warm up the body, do some core work, do some drills, handstands, and then restorative. So it's going to be the whole thing for three hours mid-July. I, I don't know if you have the dates in front of you, but um, I guess I could look it up. We'll but share yeah, them. We'll share them. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be on written down. So we'll have that. Um, and then I also at times post my non-OMSTARS classes on YouTube for free. It's not the highest quality because it's a Zoom recording, but yeah, so there's some stuff for free. And then the classes at OMSTARS live in person, uh, excuse me, live in recordings. And, and we're about to do that you? challenge. Yeah, and then the, everybody should join the July challenge. It's going to be yeah. awesome. And how about in real life? So if people come to DC, where is this beautiful Mysore room? Yeah, the space is in Logan Circle. It's called Flow Yoga Center. Um, It's really easy to access with public transportation um, or just drive. It's right next to Whole Foods. (laughs) So it's perfect. I tell people you can just go eat afterwards. Uh, And it's Monday, Wednesday, Friday right now. Uh, And then August 1st, we'll start five days a week. We'll have longer hours. It'll be a full-on program, which I'm really excited about. It's really beautiful. I get to um, help others with their practice and then I stay after. So some students are staying after already, which is nice. Very cool. That's Mm -hmm. so, so awesome. So Ravel, thank you so much for sharing. It's been a really inspiring talk and I hope everyone here is inspired to come practice with you on OMSARS, on YouTube, in real life. And and maybe one day we'll all get to go for a nice long hike together. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be really nice. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, 
I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.